because as I preach, it's not so much what I say, but but what God says, and so you need to be convinced of it for yourself from the Scripture. Uh, We've been looking at uh, this small book of Ruth that really forms a bridge for us of the time period of the judges to the time period of Samuel and uh, and the kings. And uh, that's where we're moving to in the weeks ahead. Uh, starting on August 2nd, we'll be studying through the the book of Sam, the books of Samuel. Um, so I thought it'd be good for us just to, to take this short book and, and study through it. And what we've seen is that God is powerfully working and providentially working through an ordinary and even weak person like Ruth and like Naomi. Um, weak in the sense of human terms. That, that God sent them out from Bethlehem empty and He brought them back full. Um, Naomi, that is. Obviously, she left Bethlehem with her husband and her two sons. And while there, her sons got married, but both uh, her husband and her children died uh, while they were in Moab. And so they returned to Bethlehem and she feels like she has nothing. How is God going to reverse what has taken place in, in uh, her life? How can God take such devastating circumstances and still bring about His purposes? No one would have guessed that the story would turn out as it did. That a foreign woman would be kind of the linchpin between uh, reviving or restoring the family line of Elimelech, a Jew, and, um, and actually establishing uh, this, this messianic line that would come through the person of Ruth. It's quite an amazing story. And and last time we left with a few unanswered questions when we finished Ruth chapter 3. And the, the two primary questions are, how will Naomi have an heir? Okay, we, we've kind of gotten to the place where um, there's a potential for hope. There There's a real possibility that this hope is going to be realized. This hope of Elimelech still having an heir. And how, how is it going to happen that Naomi will have an heir? And then secondly, will, will Boaz marry Ruth or will the nearer kinsman marry her? Now, we all know the answer to that question, but uh, reading this for the first time, uh, this, this would have been a question that would have come up. And so last time we saw that the events of chapter 3 were done primarily in secret. Remember, Ruth uh, wisely, according to the prescription of her mother-in-law went to Boaz at night and when no one else would know about it in order for Boaz to have an opportunity to to d- turn her down effectively. He, she puts herself in a position where if he says no to her, I'm not interested in redeeming you, I'm not inter- interested in redeeming the land, then he would not be embarrassed by the whole thing. And, and this is... Um, uh, her way and Naomi's way of, of making it easier on Boaz while still recommending to him that, that it was okay for him, a man much older, to um, request marriage of, of Ruth. And that's, in fact, what he does. He promises to do. Remember last time we saw he effectively gave her a promise ring. I will marry you if, uh, as long as the nearer kinsman does not choose to do so. And that's what we're going to see today. So let me read our text for us tonight. You follow along as I begin in chapter 4. This is the Word of God. 
Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me, so that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any manner. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in uh, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace, you are witnesses today. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may His name become famous in Israel. And may He also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. Here in chapter 4, we have the resolution to the story. God answers the prayers of His people. God answers the prayers of His people. First, we see that Boaz redeems Elimelech's property. And then second, we'll see that Boaz gives Naomi an heir. So the two questions that we have, 
what's going to happen to Elimelech's property? Naomi now is in possession of it, but what's going to happen to that property? And then is Naomi going to get an heir? And both of those questions are answered in this final chapter. So first, Boaz redeems Elimelech's property. He obtains the right to redeem the property in verses 1 through 8. He makes it official here in verses 1 and 2. Ruth came back with the news to Naomi in chapter 3, remember, that Boaz has promised to marry me, to redeem the property. And Naomi responded by saying, listen, he's not going to rest until this matter is settled. So stay here, Ruth, and he'll come back and talk to us and tell us what to do. And Naomi was right. Boaz set out immediately that very morning, the morning after they had met in the cloak of darkness, And in order to make the transaction official, Boaz went to the city gate. The city gate uh, was the place of entrance. It was the front door to the city. So if a person wanted to meet up with another person, if they wanted to come into contact with a person who was coming from outside the city, that would be the place to go. So he went there early in the morning. The city gate was also a place of legal transactions. As you probably know, it's the equivalent of our city hall. That's why all these officials are already there. It would be like going down to 13 Mile and John R. or something. and You're going to find the officials of the city there. And that's what Boaz finds. He finds both, both the closest kinsmen and the city officials. He needs both of them in order to make this transaction official. And so as he's waiting there at the city gate, the closest kinsmen, amazingly, or we could say God providentially, allowing him to pass by. That's what happens at the end of verse 1. And he makes it official by gathering these ten officials who are nearby. This was like going before the judge. These officials were responsible for settling all sorts of legal matters, including marriage resolutions, and, and in this case, it's family redemption rights. And the point of all of this is to show the reader that that what was about to happen was not done unlawfully or just on a whim, but but that this is being done according to the law of the land. Boaz makes it official. Then Boaz, in verses 3 through 6, offers the property that has been offered to him to the closest relative. Now, this closest relative isn't given a name. Commentators um, suggest that, that his name is in our day, it would be Mr. So-and-so. He's not really given a name, he's just Mr. So-and-so. And Boaz meets up with him, and then this man, when he turns it down, effectively goes off the scene. Not really important to the rest of the biblical record. First, in verse 3, he explains the matter. He says, Naomi's in a difficult position. You know, her husband and her two sons have died, and she has this property that she can't manage on her own. And so she's selling this property. She needs one of us to buy it. You're the first, you're you're the closest of kin, so to speak. And she wants to make sure that it stays within the family. Remember um, that a person could sell their land when they were in times of difficulty. They came to a place of poverty. They could sell their land in order to make it. And then in the year of Jubilee, every 49 years, that land would return to its original owner so that there would not be any monopolizing of the land. God was making sure that the land was being parceled out properly according to the original family lines that had been set up in Joshua. And here, she is in a 
place of desperation. She can't care for the land on her own. She can't care for herself. She needs someone to redeem the land, to purchase the land. And what better way to do that than to sell it to someone within her own family? And that's exactly what uh, she, Naomi hopes will happen and prays will happen. In verses 4 and 5, after explaining the situation, Boaz makes the official offer. He says, all right, if, if you're going to redeem it, then redeem it. In the middle of verse 4, but if not, tell me, because I'm next. I'm next in line, and I plan to do it if you don't. Now, the unwritten expectation here for this nearest kinsman was that when he redeemed the land, he would also have to take care of Naomi. Naomi was part of that. Now, at this point, the closer kinsman doesn't know about Ruth. He may have heard some reports about Ruth and how she was a daughter-in-law and maybe how she returned, but, but he's not exactly clear what all this involves. But he does recognize that, that he, when he accepts the land, he accepts responsibility for caring for Naomi. And that's what he intends to do. So he considers it briefly, this nearest kinsman, and re- likely recognizes his connection to Elimelech. Remember, he's probably a cousin of Elimelech, probably not his brother, um, probably a cousin, and recognizes the obligation to carry on the family name, family, um, the, the family land there, carry on protection of the assets and for his distressed widow. And so he says, look at, look at um, verse 4 at the end, I will redeem it. I'll do it. He agrees to redeem the property. And Boaz says, but wait, there's more. If you act now, throw in a foreign woman for you as well. In fact, you need to take her because she's part of the whole package. Notice the reasoning that Boaz gives in verse 5. On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased. Why? Why, why do I have to do that? Why, why would that be necessary? And he tells us at the end of verse 5, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Now, the nearest redeemer, the nearest kinsman redeemer could be saying, well, wait a second, I, I never said I was going to raise up the name of Malon. That's not, he doesn't own the land, does he? What, what does Ruth have to do with this? What's going on here is that, that he was, yes, redeeming the property of the closest relative, Elimelech, who is now deceased, but he's also redeeming the, the inheritance. He needs to carry on and pass on this inheritance to Elimelech's sons, effectively, And the way that he would do that is by becoming Ruth's husband. He would carry on the name of Elimelech through the deceased. These two, Malon and Kilion. Well, when the closest kinsman recognizes what all is involved, he refuses, verse 6. He says, well, I can't do it because I would jeopardize my own inheritance and so do it for yourself. You see, this additional responsibility of caring not only for the land and for Naomi, but now for Ruth, it complicates it for him. And so he reevaluates. He says, it's going to jeopardize my financial position. It would have crippled his financial situation personally and for his own present heirs because he would purchase the field of Elimelech, turn around and use it to provide for Naomi and Ruth, and think of this, Ruth's children... 
And further, he would be forced to give a share of his own inheritance, the nearest kinsman. He would be forced to give a share of his own inheritance to Ruth. So imagine that this man already has a son. And this son is the sole and rightful heir of this closest kinsman. Oh, what happened to that inheritance? Now it wouldn't go solely to this one, would it? Now it would have to be split between that one son that he already had and now Ruth's heirs, Ruth's sons. Now Elimelech's heirs, effectively. He would have to split it in some way in order to make that happen. And it was simply too costly for him. Now the Scriptures don't condemn him as being someone who's weak in faith. We, we don't need to go there because the Scriptures don't. But he simply recognizes his present financial situation and he, he declines. I cannot do it. Now that you explain the whole situation, I cannot do it. And so, Boaz happily accepts the right of redemption in verses 7 and 8. Closest relative says, buy it for yourself, and he removes his sandal, does this kind of ceremony that shows the passing on of land to another person. Apparently, this was um, uh, uh, some kind of a ritual that was done in Israel during that time. And it's such a rare ritual that that the writer of Ruth even has to explain it to the readers who would have been Jews, right? They apparently had fallen out of out of um, practice over time, and he has to explain it very carefully in verses seven and eight. In verses nine and ten, Boaz buys the right to the property. He says to the elders, "Your witnesses. Now this is official. I'm buying the land. I'm buying, redeeming the land from Naomi, from Elimelech, and all that belonged to Malon." Notice verse 9, all that belonged to Malon and Kilion. Now, this is interesting because Boaz is only marrying Ruth, Malon's wife, not Orpah. He's not marrying both women, so why would he say that he's redeeming uh, or all that belonged to them? Well, remember, this is, has to do with inheritance. The her- inheritance that would have been passed down to the two sons, he's taking it all off of their hands by redeeming the property. And then verse 10, he also says to the, to the officials, I've acquired Ruth to be my wife. This is not slave trade. This is Boaz treating Ruth. Uh, this is not Boaz treating Ruth like a commodity. This is Boaz buying the rights to carry out the Mosaic law of the Leveret marriage. Remember in Leviticus, I think it's chapter 25, where it says that when a husband dies, that if he has no heirs, then the, the next one in line, the brother needs to, to marry that woman and be able to carry on that inheritance. That's what's going on here, not slave trade or, or treating Ruth like a piece of property. In verses 11 and 12, the elders respond with a prayer wish. They approve of this transaction and they pray, notice at the end of verse 11, that the Lord would make this woman, Ruth, who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, what do we know about Rachel and Leah? Well, they, like Ruth, were once barren, weren't they? They were without child. Remember how long Ruth was without child? It was ten years. They had been gone in Moab. They got married, and, and then for ten years she was without a child, and her husband died. But these two women, Rachel and Leah, are the mothers of the twelve tribes of Israel, aren't they? So, by the end of their lives... They were not barren, but they were richly rewarded by God with children, with these men who would serve as the twelve tribes of Israel. 
12 leaders of Israel. And that's what the the officials pray. We pray that you, Ruth, or, or your wife, Boaz, your wife, Ruth, will be like them. And that you'll achieve wealth in Ephrathah. And that you'll become famous in Bethlehem. These were probably just standard prayer wishes by the elders. We pray that God will make you famous in Bethlehem, in the place where we belong. But, but here, God would not ignore these prayers. He would answer them because He did make Boaz famous in Bethlehem, which is why we're talking about him today. And then the final prayer wish here in verse 12 from the officials is that their house would be like Perez, who came from Tamar. Tamar and Ruth become significant figures in the line of Judah, in the Messianic line. You remember Tamar, the story of Tamar. She was married to Judah's oldest son, Ur, but Ur died without bearing a son. And then Ur's brother, Onan, married her, but God killed him. And Judah would not allow his third son to be married to Tamar because Judah was fearful that God would take his third son as well. So she's kind of like, she's a curse, you know? She, she kills my sons, and so I'm not going to give my third son to her. And so Tamar went home to Timnah, and one day after several years had passed, Judah was coming to shear his sheep, and, and she ha- happened to have her know that he was coming, so she put on her grieving clothes so that Judah would know. But Judah mistook those clothes for the clothes of a prostitute. And they had an immoral relationship. Tamar became pregnant by her own father-in-law and gave birth to twins. You remember these two twins. One came out first with his hand, and the nurse, the um, the woman who was helping her bear the child, wrapped a, a ribbon around his hand. But then he was uh, he was not the first to come out. Perez was instead. He breached entrance into the world in front of Zira. And so the point of that story is that from the most unlikely means, God accomplished the line of Judah to be carried on. And so the the officials are saying this, may the house of Boaz and Ruth be like the house of Perez, that God accomplishes something good through you, that He carries on this great name that that was uh, begun through the, the person of Judah. So, Boaz first redeems Elimelech's property, and then, secondly, in verses 13 to 22, Boaz gives Naomi an heir. Someone who will inherit everything that Elimelech has to his name. In verses 13 to 17, God provides an offspring for Naomi. First, Boaz marries Ruth in verse 13, and then consummate the marriage, and God causes her for the first time to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The text says in verse 13. Now, what do we think? What are we to think about Boaz marrying a foreign woman? Because it was a clear violation of the Mosaic law for a Jew to marry a foreign woman. What are we to think of this? Listen to the clear command regarding the Jews and the Canaanites in Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. Moses says on behalf of God, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, the Canaanites. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. 
for or because they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. So what is Boaz doing here? Does Boaz somehow get an exception? Well, I think the, the, the spirit of the law that was given by Moses was not so much that it was a bad thing to marry foreign woman, a foreign woman, but, but because these foreign women had their hearts turned away from God, that was the problem. The problem was not interracial marriages, it was interfaith marriages. And in the case of Ruth and Boaz, she is a believer in God's coming Redeemer, wasn't she? And she's also, remember, a widow of a Jewish man, and so she was the link. In order to carry on that Jewish name, she was the link. And that makes her fit for marriage to a Jewish believer. This was not an ungodly practice for Boaz to take. It was actually a very godly and humbling thing for Boaz to do. And he did it because she was a believer. If she were an unbeliever, it would have been a clear violation of the Mosaic law. Well, at the end of the verse, Ruth conceives. And notice how Ruth is able to conceive. At the end of verse 13, it says, And the Lord enabled her to do so. God was behind it, wasn't He? The, the creation of life is always a result of Almighty God. It's God who works to bring about life. He enabled her to conceive. And now at this point, if we were writing the story, we might turn the lens back on Ruth because what joy she must have had. I mean, what was her reaction to all of this? After being barren for ten years, after losing her husband not too long ago, how could how would she respond to all this? But that's not what the author does, does he? Instead of pointing the attention to Boaz or Ruth, talking about the pregnancy and a few lines that are more fitting for a telegram, instead of focusing on Ruth, the author focuses on Naomi. Look at verse 14. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you. And now for the rest of the text, the focus is on, really, Naomi and what this means to her. There's not a whole lot of talk about what this means for Ruth and Boaz. But if you think about the whole story, that's what this story is about. This story is about Naomi and what she has lost. It's Naomi's emptiness. It's God filling up Naomi. And now Naomi is seen as blessed. Boaz is, is praised and Ruth is admired. But in the end, God is the one who receives the glory. So let's look at each of these. First, Naomi is blessed. In verse 14, Then the women said to Naomi, the women of the town, these same women who, when she returned, said, Naomi, it must be Naomi. And she said, don't call me that. Don't call me lovely anymore. Call me Mara, bitterness, because that's how I feel. That's how she responded at the end of chapter 1. And, and maybe these same women now find out about this birth. And they respond in this way, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may His name become famous in Israel. Naomi has been redeemed. Her life has been restored. The means of her sustenance in her old age has been taken care of. Look at verse 15. May He also be to you, this child, may He also be to you a restorer of life, Naomi. 
And may He sustain your old age. Naomi, how are you going to be cared for in your old age? I mean, Boaz is probably around the same age as you, so he's probably not going to be able to care for you forever. Who's going to care for you, Naomi? Will it not be this child? Remember that the Lord was the one who brought her back to Bethlehem empty, and now He's filling her up. In verse 14, Boaz is praised. Actually, this is probably referring to um, Boaz's son, Obed. Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. That's actually talking about Boaz. And may his name become famous. So this is similar to what was being said by the elders at the city gate. May you be blessed. May you become famous. And then the focus turns to Ruth in verse 15. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. Probably referring to the son. And then at the end of the verse, for your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Ruth here is admired as one who is better than seven sons. Now, this may not sound like a whole lot, you know, in our day, who cares if you have seven boys or seven girls. But but in the ancient world, that was that was a time that was dominated by the value of sons, wasn't it? And so this is huge praise for, for Ruth, isn't it? It's not that she's better than one son. She's better than having seven sons. So while Naomi once had a few sons, Ruth is much better than having even those two. And in the end, God receives the glory. Notice the focus is not primarily on those three individuals, but it's on God. Verse 14 again, Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, or praise be to God. Why? Because He's the one who's shown His kindness in all of this. He's the one who brought Boaz at the perfect time to restore your life and to sustain you. In verses 16 and 17, the son is born. And again, the focus is on Naomi. The son is born not to Ruth, but to Naomi. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And notice what the neighbor women say. A son has been born to, not Ruth, but Naomi. And that's why they named him Obed. He's the father of Jesse and the father of David. In verse 16, Naomi becomes the child's nurse, very likely a foster mother for the child. And so, in this way, Naomi is both the legal mother of the child because he was the rightful heir of her husband. Who was going to get the estate? It was this child, her grandson. So she was the legal mother, but she's also apparently somehow taking permanent or temporary custody of the child. And notice what the townswomen say to her in verse 17. A son has been born to Naomi. And this highlights again the great love of Ruth for her mother-in-law. That she would give up one of her greatest possessions for the sake of Naomi. This is Ruth's whole intention from the very beginning. It's not about Ruth, is it? This story is not about making sure that she gets all the accolades. She wants to make sure that her mother-in-law is taken care of. That's why from the very beginning she says, you know, when Naomi says, you go away, go back to your family. And that way at least you'll die a happy life. You can be remarried. You can be taken care of by your parents at least in the meantime. And what does Ruth say to her? No, I'm going to stay with you. In fact, I'm going to I'm going to um, swear by it with an oath to God that I am not going to leave you until death parts one of us. Until death do, do us part effectively. You, me and you, Naomi, 
we're going to be tied together for the rest of our lives. And that's the whole focus of Ruth. She could have come back to Bethlehem and married someone who was younger. Remember last time? She could have married someone younger. Someone who was... She married for love or she married for money. But she didn't do that. She married someone for the sake of Naomi so that Naomi would be cared for. That's what this is about. Ruth is is a, a um, selfless, godly woman who cares more about Naomi than she cares about herself. For Naomi, she lost her husband and both sons, but she gained something far better than having two sons and even seven sons. And that was a daughter who was wholeheartedly committed to her loyal love. She gave up so much in order that Naomi would be cared for. She she took the initiative in the field with Boaz. She was courageous at the threshing floor. And then she made sure that Naomi's family was preserved. So the townspeople named the child in verse 17. It's amazing that they would name the child. I mean, I'm not sure how many of you allowed anyone else to name your child, but most likely none of us did that. Townspeople give the child a name, probably approved by Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. So now we come to the genealogy here at the end. And here the author traces the genealogy in verses 18 to 22 from Obed, first back to Perez, and then forward to King David. And this genealogy should bring about memories of at least a few stories that caused the kingly line to hang in the balance. The birth of Perez, we already talked about, is the story of sin by Judah and God's grace that overcame that sin. And then the story of Boaz that we've just read about is the story of a young woman who was previously barren and yet God allowed her to conceive. And the point of this genealogy is that all of it can be attributed to the divine working of the Almighty God. That God can accomplish His purposes through sin, like with the birth of Perez, or through faithfulness and love and mercy, like the story of Ruth and Boaz. And this genealogy points forward all the way till the time of King David. And so what we see here is that Ruth, Naomi, Boaz are part of much a much larger story, aren't they? Not about their little family and kind of make sure they maintain their land. It's about God's purposes through the kingly line. It's about David's rise to power eventually. God's providentially working through these who are faithful to Him, who trusted in Him. Story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is the story of you. The story of Ruth is the story of you. Ruth, in the grand scheme of things, is not really very significant. It's not very significant. I mean, think about it. She is one person among countless millions and billions of people who have lived since the, since the beginning of time. She's only one person out of perhaps millions that were living in the earth at that time. And she lived only during one century out of the 60 that there have been since creation. And she had a baby. What's the big deal? Every day, millions of babies are born. What makes her story so great? 
What's so special about the story of Ruth? Why do we need to know about it? Her story is the story of you. The reason her story is so great is that she fulfilled a role in something that God was doing that was bigger than her. It was to fulfill and carry on the line of David, which would lead to the birth of our Savior. In other words, Ruth's small story is a part of God's larger story, and that's exactly how you and I are like Ruth. You are not a self-contained individual that lives in a vacuum where nothing else around you really matters. Your story is a part of God's larger story, God's larger purposes. Now, of course, you're not going to be an ancestor of Christ like she was able to be, but God is accomplishing exactly what He wants through you, through the larger picture. And you should take great joy in that idea. And respond like Ruth did with faith and obedience. You may not know exactly how your story plays into God's larger story, right? Do you think Ruth had any idea where this would lead eventually? Absolutely not. But we now know, and that's why this genealogy is here, to point us to something bigger than her. And that is, in fact, what God is doing. You, the work that you're doing for the sake of Christ may seem small in the big scheme of things. I mean, just, I'm just one person. Or I'm just one family who is existing at one period of time in history. And when I'm gone, what, what is there going to be left? Is it really that important for me to be faithful? And the story of Ruth is the story of us. And that is that, yes, it is good and right to be faithful to God. And God answers prayers. God accomplishes bigger things through us. God exclusively and providentially delivers ordinary and weak people in the eyes of our society. Those people who are willing to trust Him. Let's pray.